Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. The Bible pictures a cosmic spiritual warfare unfolding in human history. And people, humankind, is at the center of this warfare. And even called gods by Jesus and in the Old Testament. And against mankind, there are aligned counterforces of evil, which are also located within human powers, human rulers, but which are not reducible to these rulers. And so the question in both instances, this power or this warfare, to what extent is it reflected in human history? And the conclusion is that in human history is a struggle of cosmic consequences, of cosmic seriousness. And humankind is fronting, you know, the representative for both God and the devil, good and evil, representatives of both the divine and the counter forces of evil. And the world of nature and supernature, the natural and the supernatural, I believe are not distinguished in scripture but are blended in human history. And the problem is not that humans are made for something less than the supernatural, but there are obstacles. Something ain't right. Something's wrong. There are forces or powers which stand in the way of our participation in divinity. The power of death the power of the devil, principalities and powers, potentially turn us away from our supernatural end. And Christ came to defeat these obstacles, to lead us to our supernatural end. And that brings us then to John chapter 10, verse 24 to 36. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, 
you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God. So when Jesus asked, you know, why are you stoning me? For what, you know, what particular good work? And of course, their idea is that, that he says, I and the Father are one. It's not because of any good work, but they say because you make yourself out to be God. And instead of qualifying it or narrowing it, Jesus suggests that human beings were made to be gods. And of course, the question is, where is this and what does it mean? He says it's written in your law. And of course, he's referencing the psalm. He's referencing Psalm 82. He says, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, scripture can't be broken. You know, why would you accuse me of blasphemy? And so the psalm in uh, 82, Psalm 82, 6, it literally says, you are gods. And God is judging in the midst of the rulers. These rulers are in some way oppressing the weak and the fatherless. And the psalm makes the point that these rulers, whoever they are, it's a little unclear, but they're appointed to a divine-like authority. You're gods, and they failed in their duty. I said you're gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, Psalms 82, 6, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. Now, if there was any confusion in the psalm, I think when Jesus quotes it, in quoting it, he presumes the reference applies to human beings. It's not, he's not talking about angels. He's not talking about some spiritual sons. He's talking about humans because that's exactly what he's claimed, that as a human being, he's claimed to be God. And the reference then may be to the divine image, you know, in Genesis that let us make man in our image uh, and let them rule that the divine image comes with the divine authority, that they were to rule over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth. The idea is that humans would not simply dominate, but would care for creation. They would have a benevolent reign. And the picture is, I think, reign like a king over creation. The Hebrew term here Kibshu has the double meaning. It means subdue. I think the idea we, we go out when we take the thorns out of a garden and, you know, we're subduing it in some way. We're taming it. And the picture is like in a military campaign, but also the idea of an ordering, a vigorous ordering. And so God is not merely making man a custodian. I think there is that in Gen Genesis, but they, they participate in a sense, in creation. They name the animals. He's giving them supervision, but more than that, he's making the humans a king, giving them free reign over the world. And so creation mandate, it's a dominion mandate, it's a creation care, would certainly be involved in this reign. And of course, is there any question in this nuclear age, in this age of global warming, that humans can manipulate and control creation as to destroy it or to save it. And maybe the Garden of Eden may be a model 
or guide for what man is to do throughout creation. Adam is on the order of a co-participant in God's creating, ordering activity. But I think this is to be extended. In fact, it says, you are to go into the earth and subdue it. You're to tame it. You're to reign over it. You're to care for it. So it's part of the rule or kingship is extended. I think that's the implication to this original pair that indicated in this idea of image and likeness, which God impressed on the first couple. You know, this is actually in uh, Genesis 5. Adam is created in the image of God, and then Adam has a son, and his name is Seth, and Seth is in the image of Adam. What are we to be about in having families? I think we're to impress the image of God on those around us, on the world around us. This is the story of the Bible, the success, mostly the failure, to order God's kingdom. This is the story of Scripture, the entire Bible in one way or another. It's tracing the decline, the division, the reunion, and the eventual restoration of the creation. In Genesis 3.15, it pictures the seed of the woman being pitted against the seed of the serpent. And it involves the entire human race. We, we can see that early on in Genesis at the flood, at Babel, that there is a united attempt to order the human kingdom, at Babel especially, on the basis of a unified world and religion. They have improved technology. They've got really great tar for bricks. And they hold together real well. And rather than spreading out and multiplying and filling the earth and subduing it, the people of Babel refuse the dominion mandate. They decide to arrange a kingdom that would make their name endure. Rather than having God make an enduring name. But of course it's a very little place. It's the plain of Shinar. It's a kind of organized rebellion, and I think that typifies then human rebellion, an attempt to order the kingdom by human standards and means. Instead, the story of Babel, it becomes a confusion. It's not just the languages that are confused, but you know it's from Babel that idolatrous religion begins. And that we find in the household of Abram, even the people in his household are carrying around idols. Suddenly everybody has an idol. M.R. Annas, he's a scholar of the ancient Near East. He's done studies of the Babylonian scribal Malu. He says that there is an antediluvian king, a figure or sage, ascended to heaven and received insights into divine wisdom. And this king, the seventh antediluvian king, Imanderanki, in the Babylonian myths, is the king of Sipar, who distinguishes himself with the divine knowledge from the gods Adad and Shamash. And of course, Sipar, we actually can locate, it's one of the states located in Shinar, the plain where they built the Tower of Babel. And so, where Babylonian mythology puts a kind of positive spin, on this event, you know, they're representing uh, the sons of God. The Akkalu is the ones who founded Babylon in these myths. And they imparted knowledge of culture and technology 
But in Second Temple Jewish writings, the Abkala are the ones who taught mankind things like idolatry and witchcraft. Now whatever the story is, we know that in the Bible, prior to Babel, there seems to be no idolatrous religion. After Babel, idolatrous religion is rampant. And it's significant that Abram, who will become Abraham, is called in chapter 12, immediately subsequent to Babel, you know, the multiplication of this idolatrous religion. And in the Midrash, Abram is depicted as a young boy working in his father's idol shop. He's an idol maker. And Abram is called from out of Babel to form a people who will, of course, bring forth Christ, bring forth the second Adam. But meanwhile, the other nations are allowed to continue in their idolatrous religion, in what the New Testament will describe as the worship of demons. Paul refers to so-called gods. He says, indeed, there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father. He later explains in Corinthians 10 that Gentiles sacrifice to demons and not to God. So that the many gods and many lords may be unlike the idol itself. You know, he says the idol, it amounts to nothing. But there seems to be an actually existing power, a force or spirit. And maybe there's a bit of ambiguity surrounding it. But the point is that this spiritual power is on a continuum with human powers, human religion, human nations, human rulers. And so what I'm painting for you, I'm describing a story of cosmic consequences in which man was created to partake in divinity, to participate in the divine, and in which that purpose is obstructed. As Deuteronomy explains, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people to the number of the sons of God. And this is a kind of mysterious phrase. In some translations, this is called, the spiritual forces are actually called the angels of God. That is, it seems like we have the world divided up into various religions and religious groups. Idolatrous religion, for the most part. Deuteronomy 4 describes this. And beware lest you lift up your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven, this is, you know, the arm, this is the picture of the armies of heaven, Beware lest you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, which Yahweh your God has allotted to all the powers under all the heaven. The world has been designated. You know, these people are under these spiritual powers. And in contrast, Israel, it says in Deuteronomy 4.20, was saved out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace, so as to be a people of his own inheritance. That is, the nations are turned over to spiritual forces represented you know, by the sun and the moon. That is, they're going to bow down to these heavenly planets and stars. But it's a force that they're worshiping. They were not made for. And their failure then to rule rightly means they have been usurped. Humankind has been displaced in the role that he was given to participate 
as an ambassador, you know, an actual ruler for God. As Psalm 82 indicates, they are subject to death, though they were meant to be princes, kings, and rulers. So they've apparently been turned over to the spirits or the spirit behind this false religion. The New Testament pictures the same thing in a lot of images. Whatever this force is, it's called rulers and authorities, world forces of darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, or even the prince of the power of the air. John just describes it, oh, these cosmic forces of darkness. But if we take the various combination of rulers and authorities and heavenly spiritual forces, and we recognize, oh, this is combined with nations and kings, it indicates a continuum between the human realm and the spiritual realm. The human realm and cosmic and spiritual powers. And the book of Revelation that we've been reading pictures this clearly. You know, it does speak in Revelation 22 of the serpent of old who is the devil and Satan, but it also describes a beast with seven horns and ten heads, which actually fronts for this ancient dragon, the beast. You know, it elicits the worship of all the world. When did that happen? Well, we know that it's, it certainly happened with the Roman god, emperor. You know, the emperor was divine. Everybody was forced to bow to the emperor. But we can locate that several times in history. In both Daniel and Revelation, this combination of spiritual power and political embodiment, in both cases, it's given a beastly representation. Daniel describes the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire by the ancient of days, by God. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I think he's describing the unfolding events that are occurring in the life of Christ. Daniel is giving an interpretation of the vision that identifies the beast. He says there are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. That is what it's clear that we're talking about political power. And the saints will take possession or receive the kingdom from and this title, the Son of Man in Daniel, of course, is picked up in the New Testament by Jesus. You know, we believe Jesus inaugurates the kingdom and subdues these powers. That's the teaching of the New Testament. I believe this happens, and we're seeing this unfold in John 10. But throughout the New Testament, Jesus is confronting the earthly powers during the time of Roman rule. You know, Daniel's description of the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Where is he coming? Not his coming to earth, but his ascension to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. This is, listen to Acts chapter 1. This sounds exactly like the fulfillment of Daniel 9 to 11. And he had said these things, and they were looking on. He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That is, 
Here, he is seated at the right hand of God. He has taken the place of reign or rule. Here is the Son of Man, you know, the, the title taken by Jesus in the Gospels. And he's, his kingdom is being ushered in, I believe quite literally. For the powers of the heavens, Luke says, will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your head because redemption is drawing near. This is actually in all three synoptic gospels. There is this picture of the sun being darkened and the, you know, the moon turning to blood. When did that happen? I think that symbolically it happened in the time of Christ. In Luke, Matthew, Mark, this is from Matthew 24, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, that is all these signs in the heavens, you know that he is near and at the very gates. And then listen, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass until all these things take place. This generation, that is the generation in the time of Jesus, are seeing these things. The images of cosmic upheaval, a darkened sun, the blood moon representative of spiritual forces. There is a heavenly regime change. God is taking control. The reality of Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father, the picture is the unruly spiritual powers have been subdued. I believe this is why Jesus is quoting Psalm 82. The gods that were subjected to death with the resurrection of Christ are being restored to their rightful reign. The greatness of his power toward us who believe, as Ephesians says, is restoring Adam's reign. As Christ raised from the dead, this is Ephesians, is seated at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. This is Ephesians, it's Colossians, but it's there in the synoptics. Christ reigns, he rules, he subdued the heavenly powers, he's restored humankind to its rightful place. You know, this is, brings us back to where we started in the psalm, which Jesus is applying to himself and his followers. God is repossessing the nations. Psalms 82.8, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. I believe he's done that. He will restore those designated gods the eternal life that fits their station. This is John 10.28 in his discussion. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. They've been snatched. You know, the picture in, in Scripture is there has been this battle, this contest going on. But now the contest is won. The fall, the turn to other gods, the continual rebellion and idolatry are here reversed. And Jesus is saying the gain is irreversible. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. 
Let me close with this passage from Peter in which he describes this godlike status. It's not an innate nature, but it's a partaking or a participation in the divine nature open to all through Christ. Look at 2 Peter 1, 3-4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. The picture in Peter, the picture in the Psalms, the picture given by Jesus is that humans were made to become partakers of the divine nature. As Jesus says about himself, and he extends to all humankind, you are gods. We were made for divine participation and divine responsibility. And the obstacle that would keep us from this realization is nothing less than a cosmic force, a force for evil, opposing God, opposing ourselves. And the gospel and the church They do not stand against some natural design of the world, free of supernatural purposes, but they are an overcoming of evil. The reality underlying human history and human nature revealed by Christ is that the supernatural is the foundational truth of all that we might presume is only natural. You were made to be gods. You were made to be partakers of the divine nature. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.